You guys are not awake. It's good afternoon now, actually. I felt I just have met you only about half an hour ago. Am I in the right room? Well, happy Mother's Day. I didn't get a chance officially to say that, even though I pray for you. Uh, let's pray and then let's get started. Father God, we just want to come in front of you. We thank you that you are a giver of good gifts. And Father, whatever you are given are good. Teach us to build on it, use it wisely in a way that actually build your kingdom. Father, guide my words and guide the listening ears that truly in the spirit we are in sync with one another to the growth of this local body of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there's always been a complaint. Once you hear me speak one time, the second time is tough. Uh, I just heard that again and again. And so the problem is not me, it's you. I can't, I can't change myself. So you need to change your years to shift a bit and pretend that this is Pastor Isaac up here teaching, okay? Then, then you'll be refreshed. He has a really handsome smile. So re just remember his smile. Uh, this session for the next 45 minutes is taught by two persons rather than one, okay? Uh, Daniel will come in and give a 10-minute snapshot of what happened in church. So this is what will happen. I'm going to give you a quick review of what happened last week, okay? And then we'll talk about a biblical picture of what happened in the Church of Corinth and Church of Thessalonica. And then we'll give a historical picture of what happened in QBC. Then we'll go and talk about basically just four gifts, okay? Because, oh, I forgot to bring the book. I was going to bring the book and show you um, we have why we have that book and what this church believes in in terms of those gifts. So I don't have time. I, I can only take four minutes to do it because it's all in the book. Can, can you show? Thanks, Rebecca. Lifesaver. See, Pastor Isaac had a perfect choice. <laughs> this book, okay? It's all in this book. It's also, I think, in your bulletin, if you can, uh, it's in the bulletin in terms of the you can, you can, you can, I don't know what you call it, that mark that there, you can scan it and it will take you right into the electronic version of this book, okay? So you can go in detail. So all the hard work is done by people, I mean, every single Sunday for a year from 7 to 10 to produce this book. Uh, it's a lot of thought and prayers and there's been an anchor for our church. So if you want to, you can read this book. So we're going to start, I, I usually don't, click well, but let's see what we do. Let's start with Jesus, okay? This, this, this is the most easy way to start. Your eye is like a lamb that provides light for your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. And talk about perspective, okay? We need to have proper perspective in this world in order to conduct ourselves in a Christ-like way in this world. And so the last session and these sessions to come is all about giving us perspective, the perspective that God has led us from his perspective of what this church is all about. So last week we talked about the cave. I mean, uh, when the Patrick came, he gave me a perfect illustration. You know, when we are in a cave, we only see our point of view. It's a very narrow point of view. But when in reality, there's a whole world up there with different positions. And Clive last week actually talked about what the key major three camps or three groups of view is. Um, my best friend in 1989, I came to Singapore in 1989. I was in the management team of AIA at that time. 
and the management team, there were two Christians, me and the guy who's in charge of administration, okay? I was in charge of marketing. And uh, we were both committed Christians. And we are as far away from each other as we can go on the issues of gifts. He's, uh, he's the chairman of his board in Elim uh, AOG Church back then, okay? Now he's no longer, but we're still very good friends. And I came from a very different perspective. But you know, once a week at 7 a.m. in the morning, we'll go back to the company and pray. Before anyone else comes in the company, we'll go back to the company and pray for the company, okay? Uh, we did it in the morning before people come in because we don't want to say that Christians band together to make management decisions. So nobody knows that we're the best of friends. We go into the management team and we say the things that we want to say, but nobody knows that we meet in, in the morning to pray for what's happening in the company. He has been my best friend for a long time when I was early in Singapore. And uh, what I'm saying is that different perspective of the gifts does not, should not, and does not divide the body of Christ. We need to be very careful. And so as we talk about the camps, there are three major camps and there are a lot of positions in between. Let me predicate it with saying all three camps has very good people. I will say that, okay? People that when we mention their name, we'll respect, okay? But we may have very different views about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, okay? And every one of those camp have people whom if they talk to you, the leaders, when they talk to you personally, they can convince you that they are right and you are wrong. But God has given us our stand, and this is what our church is all about. So we want to reveal very quickly what the... Three views are, and they are the, what, what Clive called non-cessationists, cessationists, and the middle view, which, I, which in the book is called open and cautious. Very quickly review of what those three camps. Remember, the three camps doesn't define everything. There are a lot of people in between, and we'll talk about some of the extremist position that all three camps in that book agree these are the extremist position. So we'll, we'll put some OB markers on there. Non-cessationists. Now, these are basically, they said, on the two defining questions about tongues and about second the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, non-cessationists will say, yes, tongues continues to today. It's relevant for today. It will say also, yes, there is a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning that after your conversion, there is a second time where you're infused with the Holy Spirit and it will give you power for ministry, that before that, you really don't have that power. So there's a second time very distinct time. There are difference in that camp to talk about whether everyone has tongues. Not everybody in that camp is a big camp that everyone has tongues. Some say, yes, everybody has tongues. Other people say, no, not everybody has tongues. Because to some, they say that tongues is just the initial gift that shows that you are of the Holy Spirit. So that's, a, that's a subgroup within that. It really includes some, okay, I'm just, some is mostly, like, this uh, first, second, and third wave, okay, the first wave happened in 1901, and that's the Pentecostal movement, and AOG, you know, in Singapore, is part of that movement, it started in 1901. 
The second movement is the charismatic movement. It came in the 1950s and 60s, and it is not a denomination. It perfumes over both the Catholic as well as the Protestant, and the gifts went into that and gave revival of those uh, denominations. But it's not a denomination of its own. And the third wave is in the 1980s, and you, that's basically the Vineyard movement, and talks about signs and wonders. All three have differences. We don't have time to cover what the differences of those three different waves is all about. But that's the long non-cessationist. Basically, today, most of you, when you say charismatic, you're talking about non-cessationist. But they're really Pentecostal, charismatic, and the third wave. Cessationist is another major big camp, okay? And here it is. They will say no tongues have ceased. In fact, all the miraculous signs have ceased for today. In fact, after the Bible is finished, there's no need for any of those. They will say that no to the second baptism of the Holy Spirit because the Word and the Spirit in you, that covers all. You don't need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, it basically says supernatural gifts cease at the end of the apostolic era. That means when the last apostle died and when the canon of the Bible is chosen and given, you have everything you need for life and empowerment. That's all you need. You don't need the supernatural gifts only for that time. It includes some, and I use the word some, dispensationalists, uh, dispensationists, Southern Baptist people along the Bible belt, along of people believe that tongues and second baptism and miraculous gift has ceased. This is a, a lot of good people in this camp also, as well as in the last camp. People who are just heroes of faith. So I, by no means I'm putting down any of the camps. The last one is the more undefined one, but this probably is the majority now of today's world. And you have to think about where do we stand. Huh? You have to think about those three positions. Where do we stand? They say usually yes to tongues and miraculous gifts that it continues to today. They say no to the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning that there's no such thing as a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives you power. There's no the second point in time. I forgot about this one. I'm going to look. He say that, you know, it's very clear what Paul said is that not everybody speaks in tongues or the miraculous gift. Not everyone speaks in tongues. So it is, some has it, some don't have it. So if you don't have it, you don't need to seek for it. But those who have it, you don't forbid them from doing it, okay? That's what's basically. So it's what the alliance uh, denominators say, seek not, forbid not, okay? Seek not, forbid not. That's a middle position, okay? And there's a whole range of what it means in terms of seek not. And for being not. Okay, that's the middle position. So there's a three. And so in between, there are actually different, different grace, different shades of grace. But this is how theologians have been qualifying that. Uh, oh, the gift of tongues is not the initial sign of the spirit. Okay. Extremists. These are positions, and I, I laid out this slide and, and, and the next slide. One group is for those who are uh, non-cessationist extremists, and the other one is a cessationist extremist. Okay? This says that in the investigation of the book, actually, that all three camps agree that if you go into those positions, they, they are more, more or less OB markets, okay? Now they're out of bounds, okay? But they exist, those positions exist, so I'm just going to lay out what the extremist positions are. So this is what, no, this is on the, on the non-cessationist side, charismatic side. So this is extremist position. If a person has not spoken in tongues, he or she is not truly a Christian, okay? Most of you don't speak in tongues, so you're not a Christian, according to this video. <coughs> if a person has not spoken in tongues, he or she does not have the Holy Spirit within. 
self-explanatory. People who speak in tongues are more spiritual than those who do not. All three camps agree that this is not true, but there are positions out there who said that tongues are, uh, people who speak in tongues are more spiritual. It's always 100% God's will to heal every Christian who is sick. In other words, everyone who is sick, you, you'll be healed. It's 100%. All three positions, according to the investigation, says that they don't believe in that. If someone is prayed for and he is not healed, it's probably the fault of the sick or the praying person for not having enough faith. In other words, if, if we lay hands, if I lay hands on someone and he's not healed, then the problem is with either me or the person doesn't have enough faith. All three positions said that this is extreme. If we simply speak a word of faith, God will grant us that we can claim this in faith. If we are truly guided by the Holy Spirit, then we don't need to refer to scriptures. Just pray and then the promise of the Holy Spirit will lead us to do whatever we do. Okay, so this is on the um, cessation side. This is on the cessation side, the second camp, the extreme position on the second camp. Speaking in tongues are demonic in nature. Some people say that. In guiding us, the Holy Spirit never uses our feelings, our prompting, our intuition. It's always only the Word of God. God should not be expected to heal anymore today in answer to prayer. We don't believe God do healing. Extremist position. God never works miracles today. It ceased when the apostles died. If the apostles are the one, they died. Extremist position. The next two is not that important. It's just their opinion. So those are the extremist position. And before I turn the platform back to Daniel, let me give you two examples of how the gifts went haywire in the early church. Now, the current church, you know that. The current church is a charismatic, I mean, use the present tense, is a, is, a, is, a, is a congregation that is preoccupied with gifts, and they went haywire. But the Thessalonica also have issues with the gift of prophecy. So I'm just going to lay some biblical issues, problematic issues, and then we'll talk about QBC, okay? So first, Thessalonica. You've seen that verse Again and again, we, we preach on that verse. We talk about the verse, do not quench the Holy Spirit. There are four commandments concerning the Holy Spirit, two are negative. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit and do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit is in Thessalonians 5. And in that context where it says, do not despise prophecy, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And you scratch your head, what's going on? What is he talking about? You have to take the historical background into play. There was a prophecy at that time, and you look at that prophecy in 2 Thessalonians, actually Paul talked about this, the prophecy, what it is. It's about the coming back of Christ. And the question, you take a look at that and say that are those true prophets or false prophets? But in those days, in the early church, for much guidance, people were in confusion and doubt because of that prophecy. Okay? So you take a look at the prophecy and you tell me what you think about the prophecy. This is a prophecy. Okay, let's read together. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, now being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, okay, so the prophecy is what? That the day of all has come already. <laughs> we are in that day, okay? So you know is that a false prophet or, or, or true prophet? You know it's a false prophet, right? The day of Lord has not come even up to today. 
And so basically, Paul is saying there's a false prophecy about Christ coming the day of the Lord, and these are false prophets, okay? So that's the historical context of prophecy flowing to the church and people confusing the people with false prophecies. And so he's saying that prophecies can be false. Is that what that's Paul is saying? And so Paul said, test the prophets. When someone say prophecy, you don't let them get away with it. You have to test it. Not everybody who voice prophecy are prophets, many false prophets. And so I give you three tests, okay? First test is in the Old Testament is that, does it come true? Second test is in the New Testament, and it's given by Paul. He said that, do not be, it's just the verse you read just now. So then, brother, stand firm and hold on to the tradition, hold back to what the traditions of the Bible is. Test it against the Word of God to see if it's true or not. You need to test it. Don't just take it for granted. It's your responsibility as leaders of the church to test it. Prophecy has to be tested. And lastly, prophecy in the New Testament times is always for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It is not for throwing you into confusion. It is for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So those are the three tests he talks about, okay? So in other words, there are prophecies, gifts. There are false prophets, and you have to test it. That's in Thessalonica. The worst congregation is in Corinth. Okay, Corinth. 27 times in 1 Corinthians, Holy Spirit is mentioned. Out of the 27 times, 20 times it's talking about tongues. So you know what the issue is in Corinthian church. It's a lot of gifts are talked about, but mainly it's the issue of tongues that's giving the church of Corinth a lot of problems. And because of that gift, there's a lot of strife. And they start putting out Apollo and Paul, and they start fighting against each other. But the central issue is what defines spirituality. What does it mean? That's what they are fighting about. And the Corinthians basically felt that tongues define spirituality. Remember what the extreme position we talked about? That's what it's talking about. Two issues. One we don't cover today. Wisdom. What is wise? You need wisdom of the age to speak. Paul, you don't have any wisdom. Stand aside. Tongues. Tongues come up again and again. That's in Corinth, okay? So what does it mean to be spiritual? The Corinthians are saying that you need tongues because tongues elevate you. Speaking the angelic language, not this world. It lifts you up to the, the status of angels. It is the ultimate spiritual experience. We are there already. There's no not yet. You heard the, the, the term, the tension between already and not yet, right? Everybody understand what already and not yet means? Anyone understand that? Nobody, yeah. One person kind of half committed. Okay, already and not yet. Let me give you a very quick. Already is that Christ has come already. You have tasted the first fruit of the Spirit. Not yet is the fullness. Your body has not been redeemed. You still die. The fullness of what Christ and this being his people is like has not come. So there's always a tension in scriptures about we are already there, but we are not yet there yet. So we live in that age. So Corinth basically believed that we are already there. There's no not yet. So they stand above it all. They are above the law, okay? So chapter 7, they deny sex and marriage, and they deny the need of marriage. They have to get married, okay? So a letter was written out to Paul. Chapter 11, male and female blur, they are the same. Don't have to wear a head covering. That's in that context. You blur the male-female distinction. Then in chapter 5, 8, and 6, you're free to do what you want to do. Freedom is all, I can do whatever I want, sex with whatever I want to do, eat, even though it's a stumbling block to other people, I'm free to do that, sue when people wrong me. 
Chapter 10, you talk about, I can participate in idle meals as long as I take the sacraments. That's why Paul warned them. What's the fellowship of the Lord's table of those who take the idolatry table? There's a lot of historical background in Corinthians. You have to understand why Paul mentioned all these examples. Finally, chapter 15, they say there's no more resurrection. We're there already. We speak in tongues. We are there. No resurrection. So it actually is when haywire in that. So he warns them. Old Testament, you are the temple. Today you are the temple. What you're doing is destroying God's temple. Second thing that Paul warned them is that, hey, the gifts is about the unity of the church, not about tearing it apart. Lastly, he said in 2 Corinthians, he said that, I've seen visions beyond all things, more than any one of you are lifted to the third heaven. But for me, I will boast of my weakness. It's not those supernatural experiences that counts in the kingdom of God, it is the fact that when I'm weak, when I'm powerless, God comes and infuse me. That is what I will boast about. That's the main thing. It's the main thing. So you can, what I'm giving you is a history of what in the churches, in the early church, that a unhealthy preoccupation with gifts can tear the church apart when it was meant to unify the church. And so that was the history. And now Daniel can give us 10 minutes. Just give us what the QBC experience is like. Pastor Peter gave you 10 minutes to talk about the history of the church, but really no historian can talk history in 10 minutes. Uh, uh, only the magician can do that. So in order to comply with the 10 minutes rule, I will be a magician this morning. You know, uh, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible that describes the beauty of harmony and unity of Christian community, in my view, is the Psalm 133. And in that chapter, the author begins by saying, Oh, behold, how good and pleasant it is that brothers live together in unity. And then the writer paints a picture of what unity will look like. The writer says it is like the precious oil that fall on the head of Aaron. Aaron was the chief priest or high priest and brother of Moses. So he said, unity is like that precious oil that fall on the head and then it flows down. It flows down to the beards and then it flows down even more seamlessly to the collar of the robes. And then he went on and said, unity is like as if it is the dew of Hermon that fall down on Mount Zion. And then lastly, he said, when there is unity of spirit among the people of God living together, something will happen, that God will bestow his riches of blessings to that group of people in that place, even life ever after. And I, I, I think that picture best describes the state of affair of QBC today. Today that we are enjoying a high level of harmony and unity among members of different congregations. We have got three congregations. You are, we are only the one of the three, English, Chinese, and Cantonese. We are enjoying a high level of unity among the lay leaders between congregations and between pastors and lay leaders. And, and the fact that we can enjoy all this harmony and unity of spirit, it is the effort of painstakingly 
building up that unity and harmony step by step, block by block, to what we have become today. And we should not take that unity for granted because what we are enjoying today is not what it was 28 years ago. In between that period, 1990 to 1997, a total of seven years, I would term it in the history of QBC, these seven years were the most turbulent years in our history. And I call it a crisis. And that crisis almost destroyed QBC permanently. And it bruised the church and the, and, and the church was badly divided. And that division and that split can be witnessed and is evidenced at all levels. Right from the very top, among the pastor themselves and then the lay leaders of two different congregations. And the divisions and the, and, 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 and the split trickle down and affect the entire church members at large. It, it, it was not edifying to say the least. It was in fact awful. It was ugly. And we brought disgrace to the name of the Lord during that seven turbulent year. And so it really would take at least two hours for me to go through that part of the dark history uh, review uh, and how we have finally, finally by the sheer grace of God who gives us a second chance and we grab hold of that second chance, that opportunity and manage to make things right. And one of the main factors that caused the church to be bitterly divided and split is because of our lack of understanding and therefore the absence of consensus among the leaders on the understanding on the doctrine of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, there was widespread misunderstanding, miscommunications, misinformation, accusations, suspicions, lack of trust, no unity, no harmony, so to speak. So what we are enjoying today is a complete picture of what happened during that period of seven years of the most turbulent years in the history of QBC. And so when Pastor, our late pastor, Pastor Joseph Sia, took on the position of the senior pastor of the church, he was the first senior pastor of this church in 1999. The first task he did and it was the right thing that he did. The first thing that he did was to gather all the deacons and all the pastors together and lock them up. Not lock them up in the prison, but lock them up in the church every Sunday night from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. Three solid hours every Sunday night for a period of 10 months and went through with us an in-depth study on the gifting, uh, the, in fact, the more controversial uh, gifting of the Holy Spirit tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecies, miracles, healing, etc. Ten, uh, ten months, uh, solid study. And during the weekday, they give us a lot of books and lecture notes to digest and study. And after that, the diaconate together, the pastor held a discussion with the leaders of both congregations. They're all together, about 70. I can't remember the exact number. I think it's between 70 to 80. And we gathered together in YWCA on one Sunday. And on, I think, on um, 18th of May, 2008. Hey, actually, what is today's date? Today is 18th of May also. Oh, today is, okay, today is 13th of May. Oh, 
Okay, it's quite close, huh? quite close. <laughs> On the 18th of May 2000, we finally have arrived at the unanimous unanimous agreement and consensus on the understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Our understanding, our position, what is to be practiced and what it is not to be practiced, etc. And with that, I think that we, the Chinese congregations and the English congregation finally put all our historical packages behind and we move forward and work and build up a united church and become what we are today. Something like Mahatheo and Anwar, you know. And, but, but I think our is even better than that, you know, that we live together, harmony, and living out the picture of Psalm 133. So I just want to read to you uh, one paragraph in this booklet. I think I remember should go back and read this booklet, but here is an affirmation that we arrived at. Uh, throughout this study, God's hand was evidently guiding the entire process. Through the process, any initial apprehension was quickly dissipated as we experienced God bringing about a stronger bonding among the members of this diagonal study team. Everyone saw God's guidance in leading the group towards reaching a consensus on the doctrinal issues. The leadership has grown closer on a personal level thus enhancing our working relationship with one another. We agreed that the two congregations would support each other and will move together as one, thus affirming QBC's stand on moving as a one church with multiple congregations. We are excited about the progress. More importantly, we realize that we must be humble and loving enough to accommodate and appreciate one another's differences in order to move together as one church in the kingdom of God. 18th of May, year 2000. So for 10 minutes, I'll give you that very brief rundown on the history, how this important booklet has come about. And to know more, you buy me a coffee at Starbucks, I will spend two hours with you. Thank you. You want to clap, you can clap. See, it's more than 10 minutes with my iPad turned off. You saw in Corinth what happened. Saw in Thessalonica what happened. Saw in QPC what happened. But God can actually bring it back. So let's, let me just go back. What does the Holy Spirit do? There's four things, all in the book of Corinthians. And then basically, the gifts, when I talk about gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is to do all that. I'm not as concerned as going through each or the gift with you as much as the principle of what we talk about when we talk about gifts. We are, the Holy Spirit brings one to Christ, First Corinthians. The Holy Spirit makes the preaching of Christ effective. So I can preach, and I think I've done a very good job, and all of you actually, when you watch out, walk out five minutes later, you forget everything that I say. Only the Holy Spirit can make the message stick in you. Sanctification. The Spirit makes sure that our life is touched and we are changed. It is the major change agent in our life. You're washed, you're justified, you're sanctified in the way that you have left the former way of life and you're transformed as individuals. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's for unity. It's one body by the common lavish experience of the Spirit. It gives gifts for the purpose of unity, the body of Christ. Everybody have a different gift so that we can unify for the kingdom of God. 
one temple and for the common good. The Holy Spirit gives gifts always for the common good, not for me, but for the common good. So that's the principle that we look on. Holy Spirit works in unifying the church. Now you heard already heard our historian magician story, okay? I'm not going to give you, I'm going to move on. These are the participants of those who, who talk about. These are the fundamentals of our doctrinal statement. But basically, I, let me go back to the last thing he said. The end of the affirmation talk about is really is about this thing. It's about unity. It's about two diversified congregations which have different theological understanding of gifts coming back together under one church. And the word is one church. And then to this morning, I added the word under God. Because it's one church under God and we are conscious and cautious to promote his kingdom and not our individual congregationalism. And we're united in our standing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit behind this study. You know, I just discovered in a, in a cluster prayer meeting, for those of you who are not in clusters, go to prayer meeting. It's, it's just a really blessed time. Uh, one of the cluster leaders shared, you know, this book took one year in the making every Sunday 7 to 10 at night for one year. Uh, the deacons were committed, the pastors were committed, and so the product you hold in hand was actually a lot of joy, but also blood, sweat, and tears. Principles that is laid out now. From here on, I'm talking about many things from this book. I just want to summarize the key things on this book. And if I can get through the principle, I'm happy, rather than uh, just in five minutes to summarize the gifts, okay? Uh, there are two categories of gifts based on the study. One is that those that can be cultivated. And there's a second group of gifts that are supernatural in nature, that you have it, you don't have it. You know, you either speak in tongues, you don't speak in tongues. You're not cultivating that gift. So there are two categories of gifts. So next week, we're going to talk about those that can be cultivated and talk about how to cultivate those gifts, okay? Uh, this week, we'll spend a bit more on the supernatural gifts, gifts that, according to this book, are not cultivated, okay? God gives as he wants. The principle behind the gifts is that God is sovereign, okay? Meaning that everyone gives, God gives, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each one as he wills. Not as he wills, uh, as he wills, okay? So all of you sitting here has a gift, or more than gifts, one gift, right? But it is the Spirit that sovereignly bestows on it. It's his choice, his bestowing. And because of that, we have to be humble of each other. It's not because we are good so that the Holy Spirit gives us certain gifts. We are given those gifts to serve. And so my looking at you and your looking at me has to be on an equal basis. I treat you as a brother, you treat me as a brother, Okay? So 12, Romans 12, after he talked about being a living sacrifice, he reminded us that don't look down on each other as right before he talked about the gifts. This is the principle of spiritual gifts, okay? We believe that this, the gifts, all the gifts, the two categories of gifts continues from the days of the early church to down. The purpose is for the building up of the church. But as you've seen in Corinth and Thessalonica, these gifts can be abused, and we need to be careful of it. And every time when we think about abuse, we think about supernatural gifts, let me caution you, it's not just supernatural, all gifts can be abused. One of my uh, friends wrote his dissertation in Fuller and PhD, is talking about toxic leadership in the church. Actually, the gift of leadership can be abused more so than any other gift. 
I mean, when people who want to follow people and people who want to lead, it can easily lead to toxic leadership. So all the gifts can be abused. We need to be careful. Now we're going to go to this book primarily talk about four things. First thing is about second baptism. I'm going through it very quickly because Clive talked about it last time. I'm not going to go into details, even though the slides are very detailed. I'm not going to go into this. I'm not going to go into this. But basically, I'll tell you what we believe in. I think that's this. The Holy Spirit is given to every Christian upon conversion. That's what we believe in. We believe the scriptures teach us into that. The moment that you hear Christ and you accept him into your heart, you have the Holy Spirit. You can look at the slides. We can send it to you also. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happened the same time when we are baptized in the body, meaning the time that we believe we are, have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were drink, made to drink of one spirit. So there's only one baptism. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit at the, pers- at the posture of your beginning of your Christian life. Okay? Being baptized into one body, the body symbolism means that we are, it's for our unity. It's body life. It's our unity and it's for our bonding. So when we're baptized, we are baptized into unity. That means we equally belong to the body of Christ. And to teach that some have the baptism and some don't have the baptism we believe that it is creating two classes of Christian, which is against the spirit of unity of the church. We are one group believing we are born and believe and we're part of the body of Christ. There's not two classes of Christians. There's only one class. We don't believe in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Loud and clear right here. In fact, sometimes when, when groups want to use our church, I look at it, and when they believe in second baptism, we, we actually, we said that we love you, but, you know, we, we actually have to part ways. Tongues. Very quickly. Tongues definition, again, I quote from this book, is speak a foreign language like in Acts or a angelic language like in Corinth. We're talking about an static ecstasy tongue, okay? Without any formal or informal training. Was, nobody teaches you the foreign language. It's not that you learn from the Hong Kong pop, uh, you learn the Chinese from, from the movies. There's no training at all, and you can supernaturally speak in a foreign tongue. It is softly given by the Holy Spirit, and we talk about that, which means that implies certain things. Number one, it implies that you don't acquire it. I mean, I will confess from the first person that I've been praying for a long time, for many years for tongues. Just God has never given me the gift of tongues. From the day I became a Christian, I know my fellowship, half the people, can speak in tongues. I've been praying for that. God did not give me tongues. Cannot be a yardstick of spirituality because it's the Holy Spirit who chooses to give to whoever he wants. It's not because you are better. That's why you get the gift of tongues. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 12, the two lists of the gifts, tongues always came last. Consistently, it came last. The rest of it are not in order, but tongues consistently give last. Not because it's the lowest of the gifts, because the gifts are equal in nature, but because it was the gift that was given the most problems to the Corinth church. The body life argument argues that the head cannot say to the feet, nor the hand to the whatever, that you're not part of the body. We are equally part of the body. There's no one part, one gift above the other. We are equal. And that's, we have to get through that. There's no classes. 
God gives this gift for the building of the body just like all other gifts, but in public, it's only and it's interpreted. Otherwise, it becomes just a noisy bugle, right? Otherwise, it's good for pirate worship, right? If it's not interpreted. In other words, it has to edify the body. That means it has to be in a language that people understand. That's the only time that it's good for building up the body. So when it's public together, if there's no interpretation, don't use it. But you can still practice it privately. It lifts your spirit up, which is good. Okay, I'm not going to talk about this one. Prophecy, very quickly. I know Rebecca's looking at me. I'm running out of time, okay? Um, Prophecy defines the speaking of the words of God that strengthen, encourage, and comfort the people of God. Again, lifted from this book. So let's look at scriptural reference. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speak to the people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and consolation. It is a upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation message, which distinctly is somewhat in nature different from that of the Old Testament prophet. The forms in the New Testament, it comes in the proclamation of scriptures, okay? You proclaim scriptures. It can be proclamation of something that harmonizes well with scriptures, but not when it's talking about scripture said, you know, the day of the Lord has not come yet. This person prophesies the day of the Lord has come. That is not in harmony with scriptures. And finally, the foretelling of an event that harmonizes with scriptural principles. You know, just April 28th, someone prophesies that, Christ is going to come again. I don't know if you read that. Uh, Christ didn't come again in April 28th. Did not harmonize with scripture principle. It is sovereignly given so you cannot attain it by trial and error. It is not adding to scriptures because the canon has closed. The Bible is finished. You cannot add by prophecy to scriptures. It continues, but there's a day it will end, in 1 Corinthians. It can be abused, we talked about before, so it has to be tested. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, in the middle of talking about prophecy, he said that you guys need to wade in in the prophecy, meaning you need to test the prophecy in Corinthians. It must be correct in content, otherwise you're saying the Holy Spirit does not really know the future. Well, it's like insult of the Holy Spirit. So anyone who prophesies, it must be correct in the content itself. That's all from here. I don't know why. So this is again 1 Corinthians 14. It's for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It's for building of the church so that the church can be built up. It must not lead to conflict and division. It must not lead to confusion. It must not conflict with scriptures. It must not to pursue my own benefit. It must not be done in a judgmental attitude. It must be exercised in love. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 was written. It must edify the church must be tested. Prophecy. Finally, gifts of healing. Interesting, huh? All these are talk about gift. Come to healing is gifts of healing. But this book doesn't talk about why it's in plural. But miracles and healings, it is in plural form. And I believe that Paul has a reason to use plural form behind it. But the book doesn't address that issue. The gift of healing is executed by the divine intervention of God. It is a sovereign act of God through a Christian and may be executed through proclamation, like what Peter said. Silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. That's proclamation. Prayer. When people are sick, you know, go to the, go to the elders, and then they will lay hands on him and pray for him. Then the prayer of a righteous man in faith will avail much in the process. 
it's in this book, it talks more about what the gift of healing is not. So I will go through that. The Bible never indicates that every person prayed for will be healed. It's in here. And it gives cited example of Aphroditus who was sick in Philippians. Timothy himself had a stomach problem in 1 Timothy. From Phimus in 2 Timothy, uh, he was sick so he cannot travel. And Paul himself in the famous passage in 2 Corinthians talked about that. Hey, I have a fall in the flesh. I've asked God, beseech God to take it away, but he does not take it away. So the Bible never indicates that every person prayed for will be healed. The absence of healing need not signify a spiritual cause. So John 9 talk about, you know, the disciples coming to Jesus asking, why is this person sick? Is it his, his sin or his father's sin? And Jesus said, it's none of the above. It's not the presence of sin. And it's not also because of lack of faith. So this is one statement that they say, the operations of the gifts of healing is a, non, is a spontaneous act, according to this one, I'm quoting it, with no prepend time or pattern. So in QBC, unless there's a clear directive from God that we all know about, planning and conducting healing rallies are inappropriate for us, very clearly in this book. I'm going to end with this note, since I went over time by one minute. And that's the heart of the matter. The gifts is for the building of the church. The gifts continues to today. It is for the building up and for the unity of the church. And different churches in, this, in, in the world actually are in three different camps, as we know of. But the heart of the matter is this. And so between chapter 12 and chapter 14, two major chapters on gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians, Paul inserted the heart of the matter, and this is the heart of the matter. 12, he said, do all possess gifts of healing? Of course not. Do all speak with tongues? Of course not. Do all interpret? Of course not. But earnestly decide the higher gift. Now, it's defined in verse chapter 12 what he means by a higher gift. But just park it here. And I will show you a still more explanation. That's the heart of the matter. So that's what Paul talked about. When, when you approach the gifts, this is the heart of the matter. Pay attention to it. Look at the red, Okay. And let me read that to you. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a loisy gong or tongue simple. Just tongues. If I have the prophetic tongues, it's prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I all faith, word of faith, so as to remove all mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away I my all and I deliver my body to burn, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, you can have all the gifts, but you are big zero in front of God unless you love the crux behind the gifts is love. And whenever it comes to, and the problem a lot of times today is that we have confusion and conflicts on the gifts because there's no love. It becomes fighting the bad fight, not the good fight. And it goes for all three camps. Love, what is love? Then it goes on to talk about what's love. Love is patient and kind. You may disagree with me, but I'm patient and kind to you. Love does not envy or boast. Oh, you've got to give a prophecy. I envy you. I boast. No, it's not arrogant or rude. I don't look down on you if you don't, if you only have the gift of service. It does not insist on its own way. It doesn't benefit me. It's not irritable or resentful. You don't disagree with me. I am not irritated. It does not rejoice when you sin or when you are wrong, but it rejoices with the truth. 
know, when you put love in the context of the conflict of the gifts, it makes sense. First Corinthians 13 starts making sense when people disagree. Love is what holds them together. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Going back to my friend, Douglas and I, we disagree on a lot of things, but we truly love each other that we go to the office at 7 a.m. to pray with each other because we love each other as a brother of Christ, even though we may have different positions on the gifts. Love never ends. Prophecies, they will pass. Tongues, they will cease. Not your pass away. The greatest of these is love. That we talked about, you remember, when you conflict with other people over the position of tongues, you know what this church stands for, okay? If there are conflicts with other people, love is still the key. And as for you who are of this church, what I want to do is actually tell you what this church stands for. Individually, you may have different opinions, that's your own individual opinion, but the church stands for something. So as members of the church, this is what we teach and what we preach and what we abide by. Thank you very much, Becca. Thank you.